You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket subs for the double-edged double bill. Tonight, Holmes and Watson investigate a death trap mystery. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Inspector Thomas Mariani, and one of you listeners out there is a murderer. We will find this out, and by we, I mean myself and my associate. Uh, I am Adam Thomas, or am I? <laughs> it was me all along. I never would have suspected that, especially with that mace covered in raspberry jelly. Yes, yes, that's all it is. Yes, preserves! <laughs> well, uh, there's our little mystery uh, play for all of you yes. guys. <laughs> yes, thank and you. scene. Yes, and scene. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, welcome to another lovely episode of Double H Double Bill. And this week, in honor of Knives Out just came out, uh, we decided to do mystery films, which we've covered mystery films to some extent, especially we did like a film noir episode, and we've done couple other films that have like a mystery plot in them but we've never done mystery as a topic in general and do you like the genre Adam? do you like uh, a good old whodunit oh yeah for sure but you know and the funny thing is i never even think of mystery as a subgenre for some reason i never do but yeah absolutely every time a good mystery is on i'm like entranced like i i find them to be incredibly fun and fascinating and i always forget about them I remember as a kid, I was sort of drawn away from mysteries. I think I realized after a while it was um, my family loves to do this thing where whenever they watch a movie that has a mystery, it's always a like, oh, we have the sleuth in the audience who f- tries to figure it out the whole time. I already know what you're saying. Yeah, I got the same thing. My mom constantly. <laughs> it's, it's just, who do you think it's him? Oh, I bet it's him. Oh, oh you know why they did it. Wait, that's not right. Wait, maybe... Oh, God, shut the fuck up. <laughs> I, I literally saw Knives Out twice in the theater, and there were people in the fucking theater doing that shit, just, like, loud whispering to each other, but like, oh, it's probably this guy. I've got it figured out already. <laughs> like, shut up. <laughs> we get it. You're smart, I guess. Shut up. We want to watch the movie. <laughs> you fucking armchair sleuth. Be quiet. <laughs> okay, Jessica Fletcher, calm down. <laughs> Uh, yes, uh, but, you know, a good mystery is always uh, fun to watch unravel, and it's interesting, we're covering two movies that aren't traditional mysteries, because uh, one kind of has the vague disguise of what a mystery would be, and the other one is a very meta-contextual mystery that is more about just, like, less about who did the crime and more of who has the upper hand at any given time. That's a very apt description, or, or as I would have said, uh, one's good, and one is complete, utter dog shit. <laughs> Hmm, it's almost as if that's the gimmick of our show. That's history, too. Which one is it? <laughs> yes, uh, because we're covering Holmes and Watson uh, is one of our picks, and then Death Trap is the other. So clearly, the movie directed by Sidney Lumet starring Michael Caine and Christopher Reeve is the garbage movie, right? I think it's Holmes and Watson. Shh! <laughs> okay, amateur sleuth, you figured it out. Great job out there. Uh, yeah, we'll be covering uh, Holmes and Watson first and then Death Trap, because... Uh, the spoilers, there's not a lot to talk about with Holmes and Watson. <laughs> I got like five minutes worth of material. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but so let's try and um, maybe pad that out a bit and just uh, let's start talking about it. Holmes and Watson. Sherlock Holmes. His methods are ingenious and his mind is brilliant. Come, Watson. We have a killer to catch. Yeah, no shit, Sherlock. <laughs> Shall we begin the autopsy? Dr. Grace Hart. A woman doctor. Fortunately, we have a real doctor here. Would you like some heroin? So, uh, Holmes and Watson uh, came out last year, about a year ago, on December 25th, 2018. Uh, A great Christmas gift, 
that we all appreciated at the time. Um, and uh, stars, obviously, Will Ferrell and John C. Riley, um, who had collaborated previously with stuff like Talladega Nights and Step Brothers. And uh, this was your yep. pick, Adam. You picked this at the end of our last episode. Uh why don't you why don't you set it up here? Why, why don't you talk a bit about Holmes and Watson and why you decided to uh, task us with watching this? Netflix wouldn't buy this. <laughs> <laughs> Netflix would not buy the new Will Ferrell John C. Riley comedy. Right, they had like some disastrous test screenings apparently, and Sony tried to sell it off to Netflix. And Netflix, who keep in mind, will buy any bullshit and just put it out there. We're just like, no, we're not going to sully our good name with this. They're like, no, we're good. <laughs> I mean, and this is pretty much kind of a movie that I think might have sort of put Will Ferrell's career in a halt. Because has he even, re- I don't think anything's even come out since. It's not even been a year, to be fair to him. Yeah, but there was a time when, I mean, he had, you know, it was constant. I mean, Will Ferrell was the biggest guy in the world for a minute. Let's talk a bit about Will Ferrell's career, because, like we said, Holmes and Watts, there's not a lot to talk about. <laughs> anything you could do. <laughs> Just, please. Uh, so, so Will Ferrell obviously started off in like SNL, uh, became very popular from that, and then had a bit of a film career boom in like the early 2000s, which I think, I guess that was especially kicked off by like, 2003 had both Old School and then especially Elf, right? That was like sort of him coming in as like a movie star, and then Anchorman was the next year, and that was a surprising big hit, and a lot of vehicles came from there, like we mentioned, Talladega Nights and Step Brothers, I actually rewatched both those movies, just because I hadn't seen them in a while. I don't think either of them hold up very well, especially... I didn't like Step Brothers at the time, and I fucking hate Step Brothers now. That's sacrilege to some people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well... <laughs> <laughs> I See, I do like Step Brothers. I, saw it, I actually liked it more the second time I saw it. When I saw it in the theater, I wasn't a fan. Uh, I like it enough now. I think it's pretty funny. Is it great? No. Is there offensive shit in Of course. Uh, same with Talladega Nights, same with, you know, most Susan. I love Anchorman. Anchorman 2 is garbage. But he's become a one-note sort of shtick of himself. He's the same character pretty much in everything he's in. That's, you know, mainstream comedy, like most of those movies. I want to say I'm a fan of his, but I don't know if that's telling the truth. I think the thing is, I'm a bigger fan of Will Ferrell when he plays more of, like, a supporting role. Like, interestingly, this movie was originally conceived in about 2008. It went to production originally as Sasha Baron Cohen was going to play Holmes and Watson would be played by Will Ferrell, which I think would have been a much better movie for a variety of reasons. But the main one being, I think he would work so much better acting off somebody. Like, the most funny stuff for me with Will Ferrell is when he's acting sort of as, like, a straight man or has a more, like, competent straight man to act off of. Like, even in those earlier movies, um, I I think Talladega Nights is the slightly better one for him and John C. Riley. if nothing else, because Will Ferrell has a different sort of weird lunacy that subverts off of John C. Riley's own lunacy. Which, I mean, I'm a huge John C. Riley fan, honestly, because he has a a great diverse range as an actor, and if anything, like, I said this when I was on former guest of the show, Rafe Telsch's uh, podcast have not seen this when I covered Walk Hard. Um, that at this point, um, John C. Riley has a bad boyfriend, and his name is Will Ferrell. He just brings yeah. out the worst in him, and it's like you need to dump him. Get back with PTA, Paul Thomas Anderson. You know what? Get back with him. Yeah, I can't disagree. Well, and just like you even said, obviously he can carry a movie by himself. I mean, I'm not the biggest Walk Hard fan, but there is a lot of fans. You fucking love it. My wife loves it, and he was good at it. He did carry the whole movie by himself, doing even you know the slapsticky comedy. I agree. I think he has a lot more range and potential in comparison to uh, his more famous counterpart, if you want to put it that way. And I have seen Will Ferrell actually do solid, like, sort of more straight-laced, even slightly dramedy-esque roles, Mm -hmm. like in Stranger Than Fiction, or I think an underrated one that nobody talks about is um, Everything Must Go, where he plays, like, an alcoholic dude who gets, like, estranged from his wife and literally is homeless and has to sell off all his stuff that's also on the lawn. Well, that's I think that's a really interesting, dramatic turn for him. Yeah, that's a good... That I was just like, he should do just more shit like that, more interesting things like that, as opposed to just kind of doing the same shtick over and over again, and especially not having a solid supporting cast around him to really counterbalance, giving more opportunity for them. Because, like, that's why Anchorman's the best of his, like, vehicles to me, is because uh-huh. it's not just him. It's, like, Steve Carell, Paul Rudd, and David Kitch are actually all together having a lot more fun. Versus in yeah. Anchorman 2, I would argue he is definitely more 
the spotlight, which is the problem with that movie. Yeah, well, that, and they just recycle everything. I definitely agree. Like I said, I, I'm just sort of tired of his one-note performances. If it's not a sports movie, then it's pairing sort of vehicle, like especially him in the John C. Riley movies. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, something else you're not mentioning also is that with those movies, a big problem definitely tends to be you can tell it's a lot of, like, the line-a-rama shtick, which, if you don't know, yes. back in the day where Judd Apatow was making a shit ton of comedies, they would have sort of the line-a-rama aesthetic of, like, hey, let's just do this one scene and riff ten different versions of it. And mm-hmm. this movie, in particular, feels like so much line-a-rama, so much just, like, yeah. hey, let's do so much stupid shit and that we make up on the fly and see what sticks. And, um... Did anything stick to you, Adam? Was there any joke in Holmes and Watson that stuck with you at all? The only one that I even got a chuckle at was the most predominant one in the fucking trailer, where he's like, this is my friend, he's a doctor. Yes, would you like some heroin? I thought that was funny compared to everything else. Uh, Other than that, there is not one real gag in this movie where I was like, oh, this is, okay, this is funny. Oh, they just misstepped a little bit. There's something good here. No, this is shit. I mean, it starts off completely unfunny and ends on completely unfunny. I mean, this is, oh, God, I don't know, Land of the Lost. But this might, this is probably the worst. Land of the Lost is at least a weirder movie. Yeah, that's true. I'll give it that. As opposed to, as much as I was saying, and oh, I was tortured watching this, this felt more just like watching a blank wall for 90 minutes. For yeah, me. it's it's just a bore fest. I watched this Pretty soon after it was finally released to, like, stream or whatever, uh, we I, I had to watch it just to see, like, what is the big deal with this? And I had completely forgotten everything about it until I rewatched it again, like, I don't know, a couple days ago. And I'm not kidding. I have completely forgotten everything about it again. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an extremely forgettable movie. Um, there are certain things that stick out just because they're memorably awful. Mostly it's just, like... Speaking to the supporting cast, um, the complete waste of what would be honestly a really good cast for a Sherlock Holmes movie. Like, especially yeah. Ray fucking finds his Moriarty. Perfect. It's such perfect casting, and nope. Nope. Hugh Laurie in there as Mycroft Holmes also would have been great. Nope. He played yep. fucking Sherlock technically with House. Yep. Nope. None of that works. <laughs> um, I, I was especially, honestly, kind of offended by the complete misuse of Kelly McDonald as well as their housekeeper, who the whole joke with her is, oh, she keeps sleeping with famous people. Yeah. That's her only joke. And it's just like, that is such a misuse of such a talented actress. And, and <laughs> How funny. She's a, she's a slut. That's she, hilarious. Yeah. And they just keep berating her about like, oh, my, how dare you just like f- fuck all over the place. We can't believe it. It's so awful. That's, that's their joke there. Or there's also Rebecca Hall once again, completely wasted. Oh yeah. I, I think that's kind of her, her thing now. Unfortunately. <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah. And, and and Lauren Lapkus, who I really enjoy as like Will Farrell's love interest, whose only thing is like, oh, she doesn't speak and she's weird is uh-huh. like the whole premise of that joke. I don't know. If we want to speak to the mystery angle of it, um uh, what was I, the mystery again? <laughs> I, uh, uh, that this exists? How did this exist? How did sometimes I say that facetiously, I don't remember anything. I, I remember bits and pieces and side actors and everything, but it's just, it's so insanely and annoyingly unfunny that I was completely taken out of it instantly. Yeah, I mean, um, I think the basic premise is that initially uh, Moriarty is put on trial and Sherlock comes in and says, oh no, he's an imposter. And then they let Moriarty out because Sherlock's an idiot. But then everyone's like, oh, he was actually Moriarty that time, but then they they end up like running into him again. He is actually an imposter. That's vaguely the plot <laughs> of what it is, and it's really just an excuse for these gags that aren't really funny and for people to just pop in. Like I do love um, Steve Coogan pops up at one point, and I love his quote about it, where he was on some radio program saying, "I think in twenty years' time, when the dust has settled and people are able to look at Holmes and Watson objectively, I think they will see that it is." Absolute rubbish still. Which, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is funnier uh, than anything in Holmes and Watson. <laughs> right yeah, there. I think right on the head. Uh, this is not going to be like even an Anchorman. Because Anchorman became a huge hit after it was released. It, it kind of died at the theater. Uh, I mean, it was popular, but not 
it didn't do very well. No, I, I think uh, it, it, it was like it did decently in theaters, but boomed on home video. Like it was one of the exploded yeah, yeah, mi- on home video. Right, yeah. right. To the point where they made like a a sequel movie kind of that was compiled from a complete subplot they cut out. <laughs> yes, which is terrible. I don't know if you ever saw it. It's awesome. No, I no, I haven't. I've heard it's bad. <laughs> that's bad. That's really bad. This is just going to disappear. There's not going to be anybody who goes back and, and checks this one out. Like, well, you know, no, this one was actually funny. <laughs> this isn't nothing but trouble. You know what I'm saying? No, no, right, right. Where even if it's not that good, it's still fascinating. Now, I think a lot of it also has to do with um, Ethan Cohen, who is the writer-director here, who um, previously was the guy that made Bill Murray sign up for the Garfield movie because he was the credited writer, and he thought, oh, it's one of the Cohen brothers wrote this. Oh, Good. <laughs> and his previous credit also is, I think, one of the other Will Ferrell movies that's, like, honestly, just awful. I haven't seen the whole thing, honestly, but uh, Get Hard with Kevin Hart. Oh, I, I have seen that. Oh, God, that's an awful film. Yeah, where the whole premise is just, like, Will Ferrell doesn't, doesn't want to get raped in prison. Yeah, yeah, he finds the only black guy he knows because he assumes he went to prison and it's tough. So, yeah. Great. <laughs> yep, yep, that's good. There you go. Is is the, is that one worse than Holmes and Watson, or is Holmes and Watson just bottom? Holmes Watson is worse. Holmes Watson is the bottom of the barrel. Get Hard is right there, but Holmes and Watson is worse. There's no question because Get Hard at least has. I, I mean, I struggle to remember it, but I did laugh a couple times. And Kevin Hart and, and Will Ferrell do have pretty good on-screen chemistry, and Allison Breeze quite good in it. Yeah, but that's about it. So, but at least I can, there's one or two things that I can remember. Oh yeah, there was that part. That was kind of funny. This, nothing. I got nothing. Yeah, especially there's even, I do remember there's a big musical number sequence that comes up randomly written by Alan Menken. And Ooh. it's a nothing musical sequence. There's no rhyme or reason to any of this. Like you said, all the jokes completely fall flat. It does feel like a bad improv class. Mm-hmm. Like it feels like, you know, you're going to go to the local coffee shop or your local like community college. And there's an improv class, like, you know, four of us in stitches or whatever the hell the name of their group is, you know, full of left feet. And you're going to go check it out. And it's just the worst garbage you've ever seen. That's this. It's so unfunny. And it's, it makes it even harder because you you're watching people who, you know, are incredibly talented and funny. And it's just dying. Oh, just a quick rapid death right in front of you. Like we've discussed how bad comedy is the worst. I would use this as an example. Oh, a, a great example, because if you're not laughing at all, you can't really make fun of it, or you can't really get any somewhat invested in yeah. any way. Yeah. Right. What would you say is the next step that Will Ferrell's just sort of taken his career? Side roles for a while. Take the spotlight off himself for a little bit. Pop up and, you know, like, one of his best things was the first Zoolander. I loved him as Mugatu. Oh, he's amazing. You know, I get all farted and bloaty with a foamy latte. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but more stuff like that, maybe not be the lead. But then even that though, he just hosted Saturday Night Live, I think last week. And uh, I tried to watch it and I'll tell you right now, it's one of the most unfunniest episodes I've ever seen. So I don't, maybe he's just needs to stop for a minute and sort of recharge. Maybe he spread himself too thin for a while. And he's just, he needs a second. I'm not, because he's still very funny. He's still talented. He's still everything. But it's just all coming across sort of forced at this point. I know he's kind of at least backing away somewhat because I know this is the last production I believe he was involved with his production company, Gary Sanchez, um, which he started with Adam McKay. And they've kind of separated on those terms because Adam McKay wants to make more serious movies uh, like Vice, I guess, at this point. Yeah, well, that movie. Uh, (laughs) he He wants to do that. That's great. Good job. Well, I think he definitely needs to at least kind of just stop the momentum because there was a point, like post Anchorman where he was just doing a vehicle like one year after the other, even still like he was still doing like daddy's home and some of that other shit, the house. Remember oh, the God. house with Amy Poehler? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I remember it. It came out. Yes. I, I remember that. Uh, I can't believe that was actually a thing, but, but even that though, his movies have been bombing for a while. Unless they're like a daddy's home or something like that. Well, That's the thing is boggling to me. Daddy's home to me is like grownups. Where it's like, who thinks this shit is funny, and why is this getting made? Well, I can tell you exactly why. As someone who worked in a theater when Daddy's Home was in a theater, um, the only reason I think that did as well as it did was because Force Awakens showings were selling out left and right. And so where's the family go after that? Daddy's Home? Oh, Daddy's Home 2 bombed. 
Maybe, well, it didn't bomb, I don't believe, but it didn't just do nearly as well. I, well, Mel Gibson's in it, too. Maybe that might have. <laughs> what? Everyone loves Mel Gibson. What are you talking about? What's wrong with Mel Gibson? They also should be in a family movie. I, but no, I, I just honestly, just to go back to your question and, and to expand upon my answer, I think Will Ferrell's very funny. I think he's he's really, really great in interviews. Everybody likes him. Nobody says bad shit about him. He's just very private in his personal life. Like, he doesn't do autographs or anything like that, which he doesn't have to be out there for everybody. He needs to take a step back and come back and remind everyone why he's so funny. Well, you know, I will say probably the funniest thing he's done in a while, and I didn't expect this to work at all, is the things he's been doing to promote that Ron Burgundy podcast and the actual podcast itself. I think have been pretty interesting. He went in character and appeared on every single talk show on the, on every network at the same time. And he just did weird, <laughs> stupid shit as Ron Burgundy there or on the podcast. And that's another thing. Probably expand to other mediums. Maybe write yeah. a book. Maybe do some like other shit that isn't specifically appearing in comedy movies for a while. And I think they'll give him enough time to recharge. Some big show at a college uh, as Ron Burgundy. Like he was... It wasn't Will Ferrell, it was the character, or, or Ron Birdie, and like, right. Conan O'Brien was there, Jerry Seinfeld was there, I'm not sure what it was, it might have been like a charity event, and Ron Birdie was the ho- he was hosting it, and when he brought out Seinfeld, he's like, you may know him from his 1987 appearance on the Arsidio Hall show. He didn't even bring up the show Seinfeld, and I just thought that was hilarious, like that type of shtick, it does work for him. But in that sort of aspect, yeah, like t- touring or like when he did the George W. Bush tour, it worked mm-hmm. out really well for him and it was funny. Like I watched the the filmed production of it and it was really funny. Uh, so maybe that's something he needs to focus on, get back into sort of stage performing like Saturday Night Live. And like I said, have an amicable divorce with John C. Riley because John C. Riley just needs to, especially he should go back to doing more drama at this point. Well, yeah. Or, uh, you know, light real light sort of comedy. Uh, so <laughs> I guess let's uh, wrap up on Holmes and Watson, Adam, your final thoughts on the actual movie. If you have any left, it, it, well, it's just, it's garbage. It's, it's completely skippable, which is unfortunate because, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you know, post step brothers or whatever, if you would have heard there, John C. Riley and Will Ferrell are making a Sherlock Holmes period piece you would have been like, oh, this could be really, really funny. And it is just, it does not live up to any potential it maybe would have had then or now. It's just ultimately a fucking just flat mess of a film. It's so incredibly unfunny. And its runtime feels like it's easily quadruple what it actually is. It's just awful. Yeah, uh, despite being 90 minutes, it feels more like the running time of The Irishman. Which I haven't watched yet, which doesn't bode well. I guess. <laughs> uh, and it's a, the Irishman, funnier movie. In, in all series, it's a way funnier fucking movie than this oh one. Oh, God. <laughs> um, but in, in any case, I, I obviously really didn't enjoy this at all. But in a way that just feels like it's very passive. I, like I mentioned, I've watched it like on the Monday before we recorded this, and I'm forgotten most of it. I just think the, the big thing is it also has like a very scattershot sense of how dumb it wants to be, because I can enjoy a dumb comedy if you have, like, more of a consistency, a thesis, with why you're being dumb, as opposed to this one is all scattered where it's like, oh, hey, we're gonna make some jokes about, let's reference modern things, but do it in this old-time fashion, like they do a selfie stick joke with an old-fashioned fit camera that's terrible, or they do a whole elongate, endless thing about um, sending, like, a drunk text, but it's a drunk telegram, and shit like that, it's just like, they draw out these jokes endlessly. Yeah. Yeah, and and it also just, like, then it switches over to being like, no, we're going to do a musical number now. No, we're going to do, like, this long, elongated, like, Judd Apatow-style improvised lines. It just never quite commits to what it wants to be with this premise. And if anything else, I would recommend, instead of watching this movie, watch, I think, an underrated movie starring the guy who stars in our next feature, uh, Without a Clue, with Michael Caine and Ben Kingsley, which is a... Yeah, that's really yeah. good. Which is the premise is it's a Sherlock Holmes movie where the twist is Watson is actually the incredibly smart one, and Sherlock Holmes is an actor portraying a role that Watson basically has there just so they can have like a straight man since nobody takes Watson seriously. Um, it's a not a great movie, but it's a really fun, much more clever movie than this fucking one was in any case. Um, and yeah, just Wolf Ferrell needs to do different shit. 
amicably divorced from John C. Riley. You know, keep the kids, whoever's kids. Um, and uh, yeah, let's find some kids. <laughs> Before we get to our next feature, uh, here is an ad for an ESO podcast. You can queue up right after ours. Howdy. This year, the Earth Station One podcast will experience its favorite geek out moment with episode number 500. That's over nine years of nerdy pop culture reviews, interviews, and con reports. Join the celebration with Mike and Mike each week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite media player. We can also be found all over social media or at esonetwork.com. Peace. And we're done. We're done. All right, and let's get into our good film for the evening, uh, the twisty thriller, Death Trap. With a turn of a knife and a twist in the plot, Death Trap is everything it's not. Are you trying to say that you don't think that you can trust me? To show you any more would be a crime. So join Michael Caine, Christopher Reeve, and Diane Cannon in Ira Levin's Death Trap. Death Trap. Death Trap. Death Trap. So Death Trap um, is a film directed by Sidney Lumet. Uh, came out March 19th, 1982. It is uh, based on the play by Ira Levin that is an incredibly long-running play that um, actually ran for almost 1,800 performances back when it started in like the late 70s. Um, very popular, and uh, this adaptation stars Michael Caine and Christopher Reeve. And if you don't know, the basic premise is Michael Caine plays a playwright named Sidney Brule, um, who used to be quite famous and used to just write all sorts of great plays, um, but has recently had a string of flops, and his latest play has just premiered, and everybody hates it, and he's just, like, really upset, and he's like, oh, man, I need to do something. And then what pops up in his pocket, but a script from an unknown writer, uh, Clifford Anderson, played by Christopher Reeve, and he decides to plot, hmm, how about I use my penchant for making devilishly twisty thrillers and use that knowledge to murder this man and take this play as my own. And he's in coots with his wife, played by Diane Cannon, for that. And he invites Christopher Reeve over. And that's all I want to say. We rarely do this on the show, but um, don't keep listening if you haven't watched this movie. Because <laughs> it gets so twisty from here. If you have any interest in seeing this, I, I would definitely recommend skipping after this whole segment. Because well, 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 no, no, no. Pause the episode, watch the movie, and then come back. Oh, yeah, don't do that. Yeah, fuck me, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> So this was like, this was my first time seeing this. I, I think I knew of it, or at least I knew the name. If it wasn't because of this movie, it was because of the play. Like, I knew of it. And uh, just to get into it right off the bat, Michael Caine and Chris Reeve are so good together in this. Yes. They are fan-fucking-tastic. And so is Diane Cannon. She's really good. She acts her ass off in this movie. I really, really dug it. It did feel like I was watching a filmed version of the stage play in certain parts. I'm sure that was the point. Uh, so that got a little distracting for me. I don't know why. Uh, I just kind of always had a sort of an issue with watching filmed stage plays. I'd rather either be there to see the play or see a film adaptation, not a filmed version of it. Uh, so that took me out a couple times, but not to the point where I didn't still enjoy the movie. Uh, I really, really did dig it. If anything, too, just to see Michael Caine. I mean, God damn, is that guy. That's why he's so treasured still. I mean, just the talent. He's so fucking good, and he's so believable as this fucking just drunk prick and conniving and just – just, I'm really, really pleased I, you picked this and then I got to see it because it was one that was not on my radar whatsoever. Well, right, I wasn't aware of this until uh, this was my pick, and I was a, became aware of this from the podcast 80s All Over R.I.P. that uh, Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg, two critics, used to do, where they literally go through every single month of movies in the 80s um, and just review all the major releases. And this was in 82, obviously, and they brought this up, and I was like, oh, that sounds fascinating. Um, especially because I just there was a point where I wanted to watch more Christopher Reeve stuff that wasn't Superman. And uh, that's where I discovered, like, Somewhere in Time, amongst several other things, uh, which we previously covered on the show. Um, and, yeah, I think, if nothing else, like, Michael Caine obviously is really great in this, 
But this is the movie to watch if you thought, man, you know, Christopher Reeve was great at Superman, but what else? This is the movie. He's so fucking great. <laughs> in fact, I even said that when it was over to uh, my wife. I was like, you know, I always, I never gave Christopher Reeve enough credit for being a good actor. I always just associated him with Superman, which what happened to him, and he knows that happened, and it is what it is. But like this, somewhere in time, uh, even the, he, he's just, he's really good and he's super charming and handsome. And then when he's like yelling and stuff, he's incredibly intimidating. If not only just because of his sheer size alone. What's so interesting with this movie in particular and the two of them is that there's a danger, obviously given at, we can go into the spoiler elements of it. Yes, when sure. it's revealed, they are gay lovers who are plotting this. You could uh-huh. worry. It would be a bit more. Oh, is this going to stir into homophobia? Um, there's a few jokes, kind of, like, there's a point where Michael Caine mentions being, like, gang-raped in prison and shit like that. It's a bit dated, but what works is that these two are such incredibly well-developed characters in terms of they are both monstrous people, but you love seeing them be monstrous toward each other, but having their own delusions about, like, oh, I'm doing this because of, like, you know, my love of the, the play, or I'm doing this because I have a sudden sense of right, um, for whatever reason. They do such a great job of making them such developed, interesting layered characters that the sort of pithy comments that come back and forth just only accentuate a lot of that. Like, I love so much the bit where Michael Caine's about to shoot him, and it turns out it's completely empty, that gun. He's like, bang, bang. Such a great moment in this fucking movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then it just keeps going. Because then, you know, I'm not gonna kill you, I'm not gonna do blah, blah, blah. And then, those were the real who Danny cuffs. You're like, yes! God <laughs> damn it! He's got the crossbow! Oh my god, this shit is fucking wild. It doesn't <laughs> stop. The conniving and the double crossing literally does not stop from the second uh, Michael Caine walks into the house. The whole movie is constantly someone playing an angle. And angles upon angles and double cross upon double cross and lies and schemes, lies and schemes. And it comes together almost perfectly. Yeah, and even just the also the meta-contextual element of two playwrights in this play talking about writing a play that can bring them all, all the way up to stardom, but it's all about their own backstabbing and conniving at the same time. There's so many weird meta-contextual layers that make this so ahead of its time from 1982. Um, that's just, like, so incredible to watch. Even, like, from early on, like, especially this was the second time I'd seen it, and obviously when you watch a mystery the second time, you look for all, like, the setups and the sort of allusions to what will come later, and there's so much of that, especially just in the way Christopher Reeve presents himself when he comes in. He's very Clark Kent-ish, um, and just coming like, oh, golly gee, I just can't wait to read the screenplay with such a great playwright like you, Michael Caine. And then from there, just like when he drops the bullshit, especially after like the big attack sequence that happens, um, which is so amazing, where just he fucking pops out that window and gives Diane Cannon that heart attack. And you're immediately yeah. like, just at the moment, like, what the fuck's happening? Oh, this is happening. What the fuck is this? And then the kiss. The kiss. I, the kiss, I literally went, I would have, I never pegged that. Never once did I think that's where they were going with it. I literally thought it was just dude and protege. I did not know they were going to put the romance angle to it. I think it makes it much better, uh, especially because at that rate, that's a whole another level of, is this just, are they conning each other? Like is Chris Reeves only sleeping with him to get to him? Or is Michael Caine only sleeping with him to use him? Like, or are they actually, like, sort of in love? You have no idea. And it works on so many levels. Right, and especially that was something that they added for the film, the the actual kiss. Like, a lot of the homosexual subtext in the play apparently was more hinted at than overtly said with, like, the kiss there. And the kiss was apparently a big sticking point at the time when it came out, because given... 1982, there was a lot of homophobia about, like, oh my god, literally someone apparently at a test screening shouted, Superman, no, when that happened. (laughs) Superman, no. (laughs) First of all, uh, (laughs) Superman's not real. (laughs) Second of all, this character he's playing is not real. And third of all, Chris Reeves was a heterosexual. What is the problem there? Where is your disconnect? Superman, no! That's like watching a Christian Bale and, you know, the machinist guy. Whoa, Batman really, really let himself go. Jeez. Well, that's more if you watch Vice and it's like, oh man, he let himself go and became Vice President <laughs> somehow. Oh, Batman. Wait a minute. 
Batman is Dick Cheney? Batman, Batman runs Halliburton? <laughs> Batman got hit with male pattern baldness. Anyways, um, <laughs> and, and it was a bold choice. Unfortunately, even still to this day, it's a bold choice when they do that in movies. Well, not, I don't mean unfortunately as in making a bold choice. I mean, unfortunately, with the stigma that could potentially come along with those right, characters. Right, right. I'm it's, sure that I am. I give you the benefit of the doubt. That's what you meant, Adam. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I, I know what I like on my TV. <laughs> <laughs> Superman, no! It's got Superman, no! <laughs> I thought this was America. Um, anyways, <laughs> but it works. I mean, it definitely works in this case, you know, just to use this only... Only this film is an example. I wouldn't want it to be any other way. I think that totally makes sense to both the characters, to what they're both trying to do, what they're both trying to get out of these schemes. And it makes, I mean, it makes it more, I don't want to use the word CD because that's could be used in a different way. It, it makes it more sort of, oh, adult, lascivious, uh, it just it, it's it really really plays into the character arc. It makes the knives go further in when it's like oh there's also a romantic connection supposed to exactly. between these two people, and it so, also works because like it shows that like these two like almost get off on each other's lasciviousness. It's just like oh man you're gonna con your wife and give her a heart attack. Oh I want to fuck you so hard. <laughs> like that's that makes it way more disturbing in its own way. And it's almost like it's a total ego boost for the Michael Caine character. Right. Like, not only is this guy so talented, but he also loves me, so he wants to fuck me. And because of who I am. God, he's such a piece of shit character. That's the one thing, too, about this movie. Other than the life, well, they're kind of all pieces of shit. Right. And it really sort of makes it fun to watch to see these type of people sort of self-destruct at every turn. Right, it shows off the fact that, like, when they end up twisting each other over, it's not like you're seeing, oh, this is, like, someone being cruel to an innocent. Like, you might figure, like, Christopher Reeve when the setup happens, because he comes in, and that makes it, like I said, so much more perfect that he plays it so Clark Kentish, and then as things go along, he's so maniacal. Like, I love the way when he has the gun that actually has the bullets, how he perfectly, like, perches himself on the couch, and stuff like that. Yeah. I have the upper hand here. It's so so much great body acting. Oh golly gee, you know, you're actually right. Maybe I should send this to other managers and you know, if they tell me it does need a rewrite, then I I'll be back here quick as a flash and you know, you're like, oh and then when he does like strangle him, you're like, Oh, this poor bastard. You actually feel bad for Chris to Reeve in that moment. Yeah. And then 20 minutes later, you're like, you motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> after a certain point, after so many twists, it's like, okay, after I've calmed down from that, you son of a bitch. <laughs> exactly. Like I said, this is this is definitely one that I'm glad was chosen. Uh, like I said, I've heard the name before, but that's all I knew about it. You know, and then when you said Michael Caine, Christopher Reeve, I'm like, well, shit. How have I not even seen this? And this was this was a real fun one. Yeah, and especially, like, it, knowing it's a play, it makes me want to see so many different, like, actors portray so many of these roles. Like, I would love to see any different production with, like, some of these people involved. It's a perfect actor's sort of story and structure. But I do want to commend uh, Sidney Lumet, who, if you don't know, Sidney Lumet's made some of the best movies of all time, uh, like Network or Dog Day Afternoon. Right. Um, like several other things, an undersung director for very celebrated movies. Um, but I think what he does here that's so interesting is he takes certain angles um, on this particular set. Like it almost it takes place in the, uh, um, the townhouse where uh, Michael Caine and his wife initially are staying, and then from there Christopher Reeve moves in, all this other stuff. Um, I like the way that he particularly places the camera at these certain angles just to obfuscate whoever is actually screwing over the other person. Uh, but in, like, especially there's a point when um, you have Diane Cannon like coming down the stairs after Christopher Reeve's chasing her, and it's all from like the fireplace, and it moves around to like her on that one side, and you can't see the stairs until you see Michael Caine coming down the stairs, and you're like, oh shit, that's what is really happening here. I think he takes advantage of like these small sort of isolated place and the certain angles from which to show people. Particularly, there are so many great shots of Christopher Reeve seething with anger in this movie. There's so many great yeah. uses of like him just being so pissed off. I mean, once again, you're like Superman being this pissed off. Oh uh, yeah, he, he he's angry and he's intimidating as fuck, man. Yeah, when he's yelling at him, you know, and shit, you're like, yeah, I'd sit down too. Or he's like, <laughs> give it to me. I'm like, yeah, I'd, I'd give him the playback. 
<laughs> I would just do it. I'm not going to fight with this guy. This this sort of reminds me of the other Michael K. Sleuth, where it's a very sort of self-contained thing, mystery thing, and really two actors for the most right, part. Right, which was a big complaint people apparently had at the time was the similarities, which I haven't seen Sleuth, so I'm not sure if the comparison Back pocket. I didn't know that. Sleuth was one of my favorites. Now, how did you feel about the end? Like, what ultimately happens? Um, I had more issue with it the first time I saw it, um, because it just, like, kind of takes you out that um, they have this... We haven't mentioned the psychic character who shows yes. up. As played by Irene Worth, uh, the Helga character, um, who initially pops in. It's kind of a fun thing where it's like, oh, she's psychic and she can kind of read the situation that was just happening. <laughs> the conflict where we thought Christopher Reeve had been murdered. Um, and then later on, she ends up coming back in and sort of basically stealing the play for herself and putting it up on the stage. Initially, I was a bit taken out by that. It's literally like the last two minutes of the movie is like her premiering the play with his old right. producer, which you love just like, oh, Helga, baby. <laughs> We got this going. <laughs> like, I love the that ending bit. A lot more on the second time, because it just shows that, like, these two characters spent so much time trying to fuck each other over for sort of either the rights to this play or to not show this play to keep their own, you know, crimes a secret. Um, ultimately, just coming to this head where it's like, oh, both of them end up getting murdered and someone else takes it for their own glory. Yeah, I mean, maybe I need to rewatch again. Because uh, I, I honestly was not a huge fan of the ending, uh, ju- but literally just the last couple minutes where it's like this character that you literally only spend 15 minutes with at best. I never got the idea that uh, she's a shyster or not, you know, I- involved in this horrible thing, takes the takes the manuscript and then all of a sudden becomes a famous playwright. I, I just I don't know. It didn't set well with me this time. I, like I said, but it's also my first time. And apparently you had the problem, a little bit of a problem with it your first time, too. So maybe I should kind of check it out again. Well, if anything, I think it just works because it almost feels like the perfect dark comedic punctuation point to this whole story. A story about people with so many egos backstabbing each other, going around, just doing horrible things to each other, saying awful things to each other for their own personal benefit. And the ironic twist of it all is they end up murdering each other over all that. And some side character, some innocuous person who you wouldn't suspect, ends up plucking their play and turning it into a masterpiece that everybody loves. Right. Yeah, I mean, because that is definitely true about this film as well, uh, which we haven't mentioned. It is has a very lot of dark comedic tones. The scene alone with, you know, you know, can you come in here and help me for a minute? And then he goes out the door. He comes in through the front door with the two beers just to get to the drawer and switch the manuscript. <laughs> it's hilarious. And he's like, where were you? Where, where the hell were you? <laughs> where were you? <laughs> like... That was funny. There's a couple scenes that, you know, I kind of got a chuckle of. But my favorite scene in the movie is probably when the lawyer tells him that, you know, Chris Reeve locked the drawer on the desk. And just the sheer and utter sort of, I don't want to call it panic, but nervousness and like, what the hell is he doing? What is he hiding from me? And it just keeps showing the desk so well done and really, really sort of like, Oh shit, nail body, like, what is going on? I really, really dug that scene. Yeah, I think I would say probably my favorite bit of the whole movie, beyond sort of, like, the kiss scene, like, all the lead up to the kiss, like, the whole, like, sort of weird horror moment um, where Christopher Reeve jumps out the window and all that. That's a great moment, that whole entire sequence. Um, But I also just really love that whole thing that we're mentioning about when um, the guns come out and they... You know, Michael Caine has this whole sob speech about, like, you opened up so many things for me, and I really appreciate that, but I gotta do the right thing here. And then it's like, oh, wait, everything comes apart. I I just, I love how, in that whole sequence, the sort of um, one-upsmanship that keeps happening from there, of, like, who's on top of that situation at any given point, just keeps going back and forth. That's All that just, like, shows off, once again, how masterful a actor's movie this is. But also, I think how um, much of a great actress-director Cedric Lomet was at the same time. Where even though he doesn't have a lot of fancy camera movements here, at the same time, he knows when to, like, let these actors just, like, spotlight everything. And also how to, like, light certain things. Like, I love the almost purplish light that happens during that big encounter um when christopher reeve comes back in you know and kills diane cannon um in his own way like the whole purplish hues and stuff like that or the look of like when christopher reeve is back into the corner and there's all those like stage like maces and axes and shit behind him i feel also especially having seen knives out this was very clearly inspiration particularly set decoration wise if you've seen any like the trailers and stuff for knives out and seen all the knives that are like all over the place on the walls 
uh, you can tell this movie had a big influence on Orion Johnson for that movie. Oh, yeah, I'd say so, which I'm very curious about Knives Out. I still want to see it. But, but I do really enjoy that this basically – well, it's not basically. It pretty much is the one set. The, there's the bedroom and the main room for the most part. I think there was, what, a shot of the kitchen? but And mm-hmm. it works so well. It's such a fully realized sort of location that you believe that someone – like Michael Caine's character, this playwright who's in, you know, writes mystery thrillers, would have a room full of stage weapons and, you know, this rundown sort of not rundown, but this very rustic sort of environment. It's it's very very believable as far as set as well. Yeah, um, you know, I, I guess we should go into our final thoughts then, Adam. Your final thoughts on Death Trap? Well, I mean, I think I kind of said I, I was really pleasantly surprised by it. I'm, I'm glad I got to see it because I would have never sought this one out i don't think just because i was pretty much kind of unaware of what it really was so i'm i really really enjoyed and i think for a tense sort of not a whodunit but a where is this gonna go like who is gonna get the upper hand i i think this is probably one of the better examples of that i've Scene. Yeah, I like that you mentioned that it's not a whodunit. It's more of a who has the upper hand on who allegedly did it or not kind mm. of story. It feels more like a Hitchcocky thing in that way because Hitchcock was sort of famously not a fan of whodunits in the traditional sense because he always said, oh, that kind of takes people away from the characters if they're more invested in solving the mystery, as we kind of mentioned with like people in theaters trying to solve the mystery before <laughs> the movie's even fucking done. Um, if you focus too much on that, you end up kind of sacrificing the story and the characters and all that. And I think this movie's a great example of how to do that, where you figure out, oh, this is who did it, but now it's a question of who's going to have the upper hand at any moment. And so the mystery becomes, oh, which character are we going to end up seeing be victorious, despite the fact that they're awful to each other at the same time. Uh, I think that works so well in this movie. Great performances all around, especially, like I said, uh, Christopher Reeve, just one of the great examples of, like, this guy should have been a more diverse star and just kind of got typecast even before his accident happened. And he should have been doing more very diverse things like this or um i mentioned somewhere in time which we previously covered or street smart is a great movie with him switching channels is another good one i i think definitely this is a great showcase for him and michael kane if you're one of those guys where it's like you know michael kane's kind of gone into a rut done a lot of paycheck roles that's true but when he displays himself as like such a great performer in cases like this just reminds you like you mentioned how awesome that dude can be and how awesome he should be even some of the lesser movies he's done so yes for sure definitely if you have not seen death trap even if we kind of spoiled a lot of things that happened in here um it's a marvelous journey to behold regardless if you know the twist but you shouldn't which is why we told you to watch the movie first right fuckers <laughs> and that ends our mystery episode here in our two films but uh before we get into picking for next week which you should definitely stick around to the end of the show for uh we asked you all as we do every monday on our facebook page at dedb pod about what are your favorite mystery films um in this case for our topic and uh, we got some people responding and so uh first up james rodriguez says a memento is a gripping mystery that makes the most of its fractured time frame clue is proof that with the right script and cast a good film can be made out of virtually anything burning by lee chang dong is a haunting experience that sticks in the mind and leaves what happens to the viewer's own interpretation. Mulholland Drive and Old Boy are two absolute favorites of mine. As for worse, I'd go with The Girl on the Train and The Pink Panther, uh, starring Steve Martin. Uh, Brian Kane says The Wailing is a Korean horror mystery film worth watching. I've brought up the standoff at Sparrow Creek a few times. Uh, we'd also be remiss not to mention Murder on the Orient Express. And the two most forgettable mystery films I can think of, Secret Window and From Hell, both star Johnny Depp, which can't be a coincidence. Uh, Will Torres says, Well, for Ryan Johnson, Brick is a great overlooked film that's a throwback to classic mystery noir set in the modern high school setting. The music in it is brilliant, and the mood of it is something I also enjoy. Uh, the worst, I don't know, something with Johnny Depp in it. Um, and uh, Max David Grinbald at MD Grinbald uh, says, uh, Evil Under the Sun, perfect casting, entertaining movie, easy to enjoy. Uh, Sarah Niemi says, uh, two great mystery films are The Murder on the Orient Express and Clue. Um, and then Chris Town says, best, noises off. Worst, noises off. Ha! I'm not sure I get the joke because I don't know what noises off is, but... Either. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I mean, a lot of good things. But we've talked about Brick before on here, obviously. If you mm-hmm. want to go back to our directorial debuts episode, we talked about that pretty extensively. Um, and, you know, Clue's obviously been brought up here, and that's such a fun, especially sort of a comedy mystery film. Uh, was such a great cast. So many great people in that movie. 
Yeah, Clue is fantastic. I absolutely love Clue. Uh, and I mean, just to think that it's based off a fucking board game. The one example where that's worked. Yeah, and so they keep threatening, like, oh, we're going to do it again. And it's like, I guess that could work if you get the right cast assembled. Yeah, but, but I, why? Yeah, it, it's kind of hard to improve on, especially Tim yeah. Curry's whole fucking launching into the explanation during the end of that movie yes. is classic comedy. Him just, Absolutely. and everybody following him all around, so perfect. You can't really improve mm-hmm. on that. I agree 100%. I think that movie is perfect. Um, and The Wailing is one I want to keep watching, but it's another one of those intimidating South Korean thrillers where it's like, oh, hey, it's two and a half hours long. I've heard it's great, but I just never had the time for it. Yeah, I'm the same exact way. I really, really want to watch it, but I just sit there to watch a, a South Korean, you know, mystery horror film that's, like you said, two and a half to almost three hours long. I barely got the time to watch the movies for our show, let alone watch something like that. Right, right. Um, but are there, were there any of these that uh, sparked your fancy, Adam? Murder on the Order Express, I'm assuming they mean the original. That's also directed by Sidney Lumet. Oh, really? Well, the, 70, the 74 one, I believe, with Albert yeah. Finney, if that's one you're referring to. Yes, I, I assume they're not talking about the Kenneth Branagh one. Which, if they are, I watched it. It's not the worst movie. It's also very kind of boring. How do you feel about him, though, launching into a Perot series that he's like directing Death of a Nile, I believe now. Yeah, yeah, guy. Yes, go for it. <laughs> I mean, if that's what he wants to do, I, I, I like Kenneth Branagh, but I just didn't realize that Murder on the Orient Express didn't well enough to warrant a sequel. But uh, no, I mean, pretty much other than that, though, you know, there's I've never heard of Noises Off. I don't know what that is, or Evil Under the Sun. I've never seen it as well. But uh, other than that, I, I mean, I tend to kind of agree with everybody's picks on this one. Because if the mystery is easily solved, and there's no weight to it, then it's going to be it's gonna be awful. Yeah, particularly even amongst the bad ones mentioned, there was uh, The Girl on the Train, uh, which is terrible. <laughs> Just a movie I, that, I remember going into it, there was a lot of discussion about like, oh, this is going to be like a big Oscar push. And then I knew that was completely dashed when I ended up seeing that. And it, during the opening ten minutes, there's a point where Emily... Blunt is on is on the train to a baby and does like the worst drunk acting I may have ever seen. Where she's like, "Oh, look at the cute little baby! Look at the cute." To be fair, that's the most entertaining thing about that movie. The trailers made it look like it could be something good. Yeah, but you get the director of the help to do it, uh, and you're like, "Oh, that's why that doesn't work." (laughs) Yeah, you know, another one I want to throw in there is the bad one is uh, the Bone Collector. That was that the one with Snoop Dogg. No, that's Bones. No, Bones, I'm sorry. The Bone Collector is uh, Denzel Washington and Angelina Jolie. Okay. Yeah, you're not missing anything. It's <laughs> one of those where, where the reveal, you're like, what? Like, what the, you know, it's, it's one of those classic, you know, sort of reveal thriller twist movies where the one character that was in it for five minutes but the camera focused on for more than 30 seconds is going to be your killer. Yeah, we're, by process of elimination, it would have to be them. It has to be, and it's the stupidest motives. So, yeah, that's the one. That's a terrible There's ones like that, and there's also the sort of the opposite ones where it's like, oh, but what's end up going to be in some very preposterous twist that happened a lot, especially after The Sixth Sense. We got a lot of especially weird supernatural ones. Like Secret Window was mentioned. I completely agree on that. That's another example where I like a lot of the build-up of that movie, especially when John Turturro initially comes in. I'm like, oh, this is going to be interesting. And it just gets to be really fucking stupid. Yeah, no, Secret Window, dude. Holy God. The fucking end where he's got the braces and shit. Like, what is this? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Why am I watching this? And then with that fucking try to do the John Turturro voice. Oh, get out of here with this. Another one in that same vein that came out around that time, I would say, is Identity. Which I, has such a great cast and such a sort of like interesting build-up. And then the twist, I think, is very dumb. <laughs> the twist is awful. The twist is absolutely awful. That ruined that movie for me. And I know a lot of people who really like that movie. But the twist just completely ruins that film for me. Yeah, it's it's really bad. I won't spoil it if you're curious, but it's bad. <laughs> I have multiple personalities. What? Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> Look, if we're spoiling Identity from 2002 or whatever the fuck it came out, then uh, I, I, I don't care, I guess is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a good movie, so... <laughs> 
and uh, we also had some uh, feedback in reference to our pre- previous episode about Tom Hanks, where uh, Chris Talent also said, uh, I can honestly say I have not seen either of these two Tom Hanks films, so I'm definitely curious to listen when I get home. Um, and then uh, Donald Hit at uh, Bangor said, Haven't listened to the podcast yet, but which of you guys put Apollo 13 down as a bad movie? It's really not the worst Tom Hanks movie. Wink emoji. Seriously, I love Joe vs. the Volcano when it came out, but I'm afraid to watch it now. Uh, be afraid. Be very afraid, Donald. Yeah, if you want to go to sleep or you got an hour and a half to kill and it's you don't feel like actually caring about anything that you're seeing on screen, then I guess you could do worse. I don't know, then yeah, I've seen a lot more love for that come out around when um, they released uh, the Won't You Be My Neighbor with Tom Hanks, and everyone's like, nobody talks about Joe vs. the Volcano, such an underrated movie. No, and... no. no, there's a reason nobody talks about it. Let's, <laughs> stop. Let's stop being nostalgic for shit just because it came out when you were born, or around when you were born. Doesn't make it fucking good. Or you saw it a lot on cable as a kid. Exactly, it doesn't really make it fucking it. good. Do you know how much shit I used to watch as a kid and I thought was awesome? It's garbage now. Like, let's just stop with this. Stop with this. I mean, I, I'm not necessarily against, you know, people having their opinions and speaking out about it. Um, I am. God damn it, I am. <laughs> that's, that's a good point. That's why you're on a podcast. That's completely against your thing. <laughs> Oh, for sure. But uh, we also want to thank all of you for submitting that feedback, along with some other people here. Uh, thanks to Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used for our show. You can listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Emily Scarter for the art that she provided for our show. And uh, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Pod. As we mentioned, every Monday we put out those feelers about uh, whatever topic we're going to be doing and ask you. And uh, if you contribute, we'll go ahead and read on the show. And uh, you can also email us with feedback at doubleedgedoublebill, all spelled out, at gmail.com. And, you know, speaking about that Facebook and Twitter page, Adam, um, you know, it's been a while since we've allowed a bit of audience participation for them to vote for a movie. We did that earlier this year with our 2019 Midway episode, uh, where they picked the bad film of Replicas. Glorious Replicas. Remember Replicas? No. So long ago. (laughs) (laughs) The Salad Days of Replicas. But, uh, you know, we decided, you know, we're coming up uh, on the end of the year and we're going to do another 2019 in review episode uh, in the month of December. And uh, we decided, you know what, let's give people another chance to vote. Uh, But this time we're going to do it for a good pick. Um, And uh, so basically uh, the day after this episode releases, so on December 4th, 2019, and through the week uh, following the, the seven days after, so it's December 13th. We're going to have polls up on the Facebook and Twitter page uh, for you to vote on uh, two of Adam's choices here for the good pick for our 2019 wrap-up episode. And Adam, uh, what are those two choices? One of the choices is the uh, previously mentioned The Irishman, simply because everything I've heard uh, makes it sound awesome. But I'm going to wait to watch it based on what the choice is. And if you guys have listened to the show for a while or you know me at all you know that's incredibly difficult for me to wait to watch a scorsese movie with de niro in it uh so the irishman's the one pick and the other one was my biggest surprise theatrically of the year is shazam because i expected shazam to be garbage and it turns out it's incredibly uh good-hearted and sweet and the ending is adorable and awesome yeah so um irishman versus shazam uh whoever wins we win yes yeah. I, I think that's the case Yes, uh, so we'll cobble together, like I said, the results of both the Twitter and Facebook polls uh, to calculate who our winner's going to be, and uh, we'll announce that on the episode prior, so that'll be in two weeks, uh, what the winner of that discussion will be, and we'll also pick the bad pick that I'll have the choices of, which will be very interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy. Yes, we'll we'll get to all of that, so make sure to vote and uh, get your voice heard out there so we can uh, pick a good or bad. You know, who, so we can pick a good one. You know, pick a good one for us. Do it, if you can. Yeah. Come on. We, <laughs> and uh, you can also follow my own individual musings at uh, not the Who's Tommy on Twitter and Instagram, and I also do some writing at MarianiThomas.wordpress.com, uh, where I have reviews up for both Knives Out and also The Irishman. If you're curious about my thoughts on either of those, um, and I also do some writing at TreeSuperHeroFans.com. We're still working on the website a bit. We're rebuilding, but we should be up soon. Again, and you can also hear me as a guest spot on the latest episode of Horror Returns, where I talk about in spoilery detail *Knives Out*, and we also talk about *Rear Window*, the Hitchcock classic. Hmm. *Rear Window* is awesome. I have yet to see *Knives Out*, but after your review, I'm very interested. 
Yes, and uh, Adam, uh, you also have some podcast appearances in Arc to Discuss, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to be on uh, the newest, uh, well, the next episode of previous guests, Rafe Telsch, uh, have not seen this podcast discussing uh, one of my favorites, a, the noir slash sci-fi slash horror slash whatever you want to call it, Dark City. Um, and then also, yes, if you go to facebook.com slash ghoulish gourds, I do custom, well, I did do custom pumpkins and still can do custom pumpkins for people. Um, they're made out of foam, so they last forever. But I'm also going to be doing Christmas bulbs. Um, so, you know, all custom work, all one of a kind, all commission based. So if there's something somebody wants, get a hold of me. You mentioned you heard it on the show and I'll cut you a bargain. Yes. Tis the season, Adam. Yeah, for real. So fucking buy stuff from me. (laughs) (laughs) Tis the season for capitalist greed. (laughs) Exactly. I got kids. I knew you had one. I'm not sure if they were plural. In that sense. I mean, there, there, there might be. That you're, you're not aware of them. This is no, be. no, no, no. Wink, wink. <laughs> Child support payments. <laughs> um, you know, also just out of apropos of the Christmas season, I just want to put out a recommendation there because it's a movie that's uh, not been discussed much out there, but it's on Netflix right now. Everybody watch Klaus. Oh, dude, I want to watch that. I might watch that tomorrow. I mean, I, I'm very, very curious about that one. For, so. for those of you who don't know, it's the basic thing is it's a hand-drawn animated film on Netflix. It's their first original film, and it's uh, made by a bunch of the animators who did the '90s Renaissance era Disney movies. So people who've been animated on like Aladdin and uh, The Lion King, and all, all the way until like they stopped doing animated like two D animated productions in general, all worked on this thing. It's a great, heartwarming holiday season movie about a postman who uh, basically stumbles upon the origins of Santa Claus and christmas it's very adorable very uh awesome. gets get you into the season quite well awesome i'm gonna watch it tomorrow with the kid then yeah do it um and you can also uh encourage more people to you know spread the holiday cheer by subscribing to us on apple podcasts youtube spotify stitcher and other podcasting platforms and uh, if you're listening on the eso network why not dig into the archives of the first several episodes of our show that we didn't put up there and uh, you can also rate review or at the very least, share us around just to give us more visibility. We would greatly appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, and buy my stuff. <laughs> <laughs> buy more things. Um, and now, Adam, it's time that we got to uh, doing our picking for next week. Uh, because, you know, uh, we do this at the end of every episode. If you're unfamiliar, uh, we each have two picks, either good or bad, depending on who has the quality for that week. This week, Adam has two good picks for uh, next week's movies, and I have two bad picks. And uh, we decided, you know, it's been about a month since a big streaming service launched, and we decided we're going to do our first streaming service sort of um, episode, but one about a topic we've previously covered on the show of Disney films with Disney+. Plus. So anything on the Disney Plus service that's actually on there, not that weird screen that pops up where it's like, hey, we can't stream this until 2021, <laughs> so wait on it for right now because of existing streaming contracts. Um, and uh, Adam, I know obviously you have a kid, so you have a divulge into the service. Are you satisfied so far with the streaming service at Disney Plus? I mean, really, yeah. So far, I am. We've, uh, you know, it's a lifesaver sometimes. And plus, it, it just gives me an opportunity to show my kid, you know, the older ones, the classics that I love or grew up with. Or plus, dude, the Mandalorian, though. Except maybe the newest episode was kind of weak, but the first two episodes I really loved. Do you mean the third episode? Because I really like the fourth one that just came out. No, I meant I did not like the fourth one. Oh, okay. I really dug the fourth one quite a bit. fourth one was very Star Trek The Next Generation for me, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it felt very against the previous three. I don't know. I really dug Gina Carano coming in. Also, I felt more emotionally invested because, like, my just a side change on The Mandalorian. My biggest problem with The Mandalorian is I love everything about the show, except I do not feel that engaged with the main character at all. Uh, well, no, but I, I think that might be. I think they're building to that because in in the last episode, he really had. They gave him more personality. He talked a hell of a lot more than they showed the scene where he did, in fact, take off his helmet, even though he didn't see him or anything. So I think they're building up to it. I think they are, but at the same time... I think they're just, opening him up as the series goes on. And literally encasing his armor, I guess. I, I guess, <laughs> but at the same time, I just feel like we're kind of... 
not nearly as engaged in him as any of the other characters because of the lack of the mask. I know that's been a big acting thing, obviously. It's like, oh, n- without a mask or anything. But even his body language, it just feels like I'm watching an action figure, quite frankly. No, I get it. I get it. Yeah, yeah, you're not wrong. Yeah, but, but I mean, I, but but that what, baby Yoda, though. <laughs> I mean, what the fuck? Come on. <laughs> no, I, I can't deny the power of baby Yoda, especially in that most recent episode where it's like, oh, he oh. gets to play with kids. So. Uh, he, like, he look at him drinking a soup. Oh. <laughs> I also love that it's mostly practical, and it, it yes, just I love it. it. Yeah, and it feels just like it's a real, actual little baby Yoda. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. that's so sweet. I, I, did he die in Return of the Jedi so he could avoid child support? Was that was that the case? <laughs> that's possible. That's possible. <laughs> Disappear! I must. Force ghost! I must. Be. Force ghost cannot give credits. <laughs> uh, but anyway, we're getting sidetracked. Yeah. So you have the two good picks, I have the two bad ones. You've assigned number between one and ten uh, for both those, and I've done the same for mine. So for your two good picks, I'm going to pick number six. Okay. At number eight, I have 1991s, I believe, The Rocketeer. Wow, great! Love The Rocketeer, that's awesome! Yeah, I've seen it in forever, but I remember loving it. And then at number three, I had the Black Cauldron. Oh wow! Disney's darkest animated movie, and, and, that, um, and that's a controversial choice because that's one that's kind of decried a lot more. Yeah, uh, but also again, uh, I I use this as an opportunity to revisit things I haven't seen in a long time. When I first saw the Black Cauldron, I loved it. Who knows now? Well, I've never seen it. That's one of the things I want to watch on Disney Plus, just because that's one of the few of the traditional animated ones I haven't seen. Mm-hmm. Well, there you go. Look at you. Look at me doing things for you. Okay, uh, now here you go to take a shit right on me. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, that's after the podcast, Adam. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a writer. Um, at number, I'll go number two. Hmm. Well, Adam, uh, we're oh, gonna be in for a great uh, jamboree, as it were, because at number four, I have 2002's The Country Bears. Jesus Christ. Starring Christopher Walken and a bunch of terrifying animatronic bears. Oh, no. I all the shit I thought you were going to pick. That wasn't even on the radar, but of course you picked that. It's a deep cut. It's a deep cut that that actually... It's a deep cut that I actually saw in the theater as a child. I'm one of the few people. (laughs) (laughs) Boy, what was your other choice? Well, at number seven, I had Kazam! Starring I expected that. Yeah. (laughs) I expected that in, like, John Carter. Or, you know, even the Lone Ranger again, or something like that. No, look, at least ah. Country Bears is like 85 minutes long. Oh, thank God. <laughs> All right. The but that's it. Country Bears. Yeah, you know, that's, that's a real uh, heartwarming Disney double feature yeah. right there. Oh, boy. Uh, well, um, let's go ahead and uh, mosey on out of here, Adam. But um, I wonder, uh, how was your tea that I gave you at the start of the episode? How are you feeling after drinking it? I mean, with the, with the picks, I hope it kills me. Well, and three, two. I mean, no, Tom, obviously. Thank God. (laughs) I'll bring him back to life before the end of the episode. Here's the antidote. Good night. 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 Good night. Ah, good night. has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.